Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. It's State of Ukraine. I'm Steve Inskeep with NPR's best reporting on a war that is changing the world. Two clashing stories explain an explosion on a Russian warship. Neither version is good for Russia because both end in disaster. The Moskva, or Moscow, is a guided missile cruiser and is the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Maybe we should say it was the flagship. Ukraine asserts it struck this cruiser with a missile. Russia's defense ministry claims that in reality a fire on board detonated ammunition and forced the evacuation of the crew. The U.S. Naval Institute offers some information about the armaments involved. The Moskva carries 16 powerful cruise missiles, each the size of a telephone pole and very destructive. That is the power now knocked out of action. Ukraine has anti-ship missiles. They're called Neptune missiles, and you fire them out to sea from the back of a truck. We'll bring you more about the cruiser as we learn it. Now, as the war continues, the United States is helping Ukraine to collect information about war crimes. Plenty of video already documents atrocities in Ukraine. Establishing criminal responsibility for specific acts can be harder. Leila Fadel spoke with NPR's Ryan Lucas about the U.S. help. So what is the U.S. doing right now to assist Ukraine in its investigation? So I spoke with Beth Van Skok about this. She's the U.S. ambassador at large for global criminal justice, top State Department official on this. Uh, And she says the Justice Department and State Department are working with European allies to support the Ukrainian prosecutor general who is investigating on the ground. Uh, The State Department is also helping fund outside experts, uh, so experienced war crimes lawyers and investigators uh, who are also assisting Ukrainian authorities. And Van Skok says all of this is important. It's extremely important for the sanctity and integrity of history to document these crimes to make sure that we have preserved and authenticated the evidence that is being generated in the various crime scenes around Ukraine. And it's also important, she says, that victims know that the world sees what they experienced and that the world is working to help deliver justice. Mm. You said the U.S. is funding non-governmental groups that are helping investigate these possible war crimes. What are they doing? Well, before the war began, the U.S. was funding a group of international experts who were helping Ukraine investigate possible war crimes following uh, Russia's takeover of Crimea and Donbass back, back in 2014. This group is made up of prosecutors, investigators, forensic experts, uh, all people with extensive experience working on these types of cases. One of the people leading this effort is Clint Williamson. He's a former U.S. ambassador for war crimes issues. Uh, he says the group is ramping up its operations now following Russia's full-scale invasion uh, and the sort of violence that we've seen in places like Bucha outside Kiev. Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of this, there are also so-called mobile justice teams, so international experts on the ground in Ukraine assisting authorities in their investigations. At least one such group is currently in Ukraine. Now, Williamson says... Uh, Ukraine has very solid, very capable investigators, but they've mostly dealt with lower level perpetrators in the past. And the scope and scale of what they're facing now, he says, is very different. You know, you're potentially looking at command responsibility cases that can go up to senior political and, and military leaders. So this becomes just a much more complex investigative and prosecutorial approach. 
And that's where the outside experts' experience and expertise can come in assisting the Ukrainians. What types of evidence are likely to come into play here? Well, all sorts of things. Uh, Investigators will be interviewing eyewitnesses. They'll be looking at ballistics evidence to show what types of munitions were used. Uh, They can identify what Russian military units were present at a given time in a given place and who was in command. Uh, The U.S. and its allies can also dig into their own intelligence capabilities, including uh, what's known as signals intelligence, so intercepts of communications. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Now, the first step in confirming that anything happened in Ukraine is for independent observers to look for themselves. A few days ago, our colleague Scott Detrow had a look around Borodyanka. That's one of the cities near Kiev from which Russian forces recently withdrew. And today we hear Scott's stories of two people who survived the Russian occupation. Natasha and her daughter's family spent a month hiding in a cramped, cold root cellar. What did we eat? Mostly potatoes. I had some spare oil, then I have a cow, so I had milk. And I went to my neighbor, I gave her some milk, she gave me some other things, some cheese. So this is how we survived. Our cow saved us. Natasha searches for the key to the cellar. As she fumbles for the lock, emotions wash over her. She says it's hard to talk about, to find the words. She unlocks the door and takes us downstairs. The cellar is mostly filled with crates of potatoes. At night, Natasha says they lay a carpet over the crates and try to sleep on top of that, keeping warm under all the blankets they had. The Russians left Bordyanka on March 31st. In the final days of the occupation, Natasha says a Russian soldier confronted her. He thought she was scouting Russian troops' locations and sharing them with the Ukrainian army. I was in my garden milking my cow, and the guy, he shouted to me. He said, hey, old woman, come here. And he started to accuse me that every time you go outside, somebody is shelling, somebody is destroying our columns. He was saying that it was me who did that. But I said, no, I never spent time outside, except in that moment when I needed to milk my cow. I'm not spending my time doing anything bad. She says he took her out to the middle of the road, and pointed a gun at her head. He was threatening me. And what did I say to him? I didn't wish him anything bad. I said I had just one wish, that he would see my face for the rest of his days, so he would never forget what he's done here. The soldier spoke to someone else on the radio. Then, Natasha says, he let her go. We keep making our way west down Central Street. Building after building is collapsed from the bombardment of tank and rocket fire. In the nearby town of Bucha, bodies were found in the street. Here, with so many collapsed structures, the worry is that the bodies are still trapped underneath. Cranes carefully pick up debris as recovery teams look for remains. There's a playground in front of one of the buildings. A woman is sitting there on a bench next to a slide, watching them work. Her name is Ludmila Boyko. My sister and her son lived here. This is what's left of them. A pile of old notebooks. His mother kept his old notebooks from school. Ludmilla found them, scattered among the rubble of the apartment building. That and some pictures, she says, are the only things she's found. Ludmilla's sister, Elena Venenko, was 56. Her nephew, Yuri, was 24. 
Ludmilla says he had just graduated from college. They'd left their apartment and sought shelter. But on March 1st, during a break in the shelling and bombing, Elena and Yuri went back. Ludmilla says they talked on the phone, and Elena told her they'd been able to shower and eat some food. An hour and a half later, Russian forces destroyed the building. Our friends were trying to help us, but for four days, it was a huge fire here. And so first, they were trying to fight the fire. They didn't have a chance to do excavations right away. When the fire stopped burning, people tried to look for survivors. Then shelling began again, and they had to flee. After that, she says Russian forces were posted here, and nobody could get near the building. Searching couldn't resume until a month after the attack. So you're just sitting here and waiting and watching? Yeah, I just want to see how they discover all of the bodies that they assume should be there. And then probably I would like to do something like with DNA testing, because I want to know for sure what happened. I was so close with them that I don't even know how should I live now? How should I live in this place? Then... Amid the devastation, a surprising human moment. Ludmilla is telling us about Bordyanka's long-running exchange program with a town in Wisconsin. I tell her one of our producers who's standing nearby, Kat Monsdorf, is from there. Turns out, Ludmilla knows Kat's neighbors. She's been to her street. Mother Casey, three daughter. Yeah. Very nice. Kathy. Yes. Wow. They hug, and Ludmilla beams. It's the first time in all these days that I can say that I am happy. But before long, our minds turn back to what's in front of us. A children's playground, surrounded by destruction. A crane, slowly removing rubble from a collapsed building. Soon, the recovery team will discover a woman's body. Ludmilla will climb up the pile of rubble to look. The body will be removed and covered and placed next to the three others found earlier that day. And this is State of Ukraine, NPR's best reporting on a war that's changing the world. You get regular updates in this feed. Milton Gavara produced and Catherine Laidlaw edited this episode. I'm Steve Inskeep. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.